You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. This is the third in a series of, of chats with my friend Jess Morthup. Jess, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mick. Lovely to be back. Now, towards the end of the last program, you talked a little bit about, um, I guess it was pastoral care and in the context of anxiety, and we were talking about the sorts of things, the sorts of conversations that are being had right now in, in Pacifica, in Oceania, and the very real and live issues of um people dealing with their homes slowly disappearing beneath the waves, or maybe not so slowly in some areas. But it would also be fair to say that even in the Western world, in countries like Australia, that, quote-unquote, the youth of today are becoming increasingly concerned about climate change, even if for the moment COVID's kind of taken centre stage. And I know with a student, um, my son doing VCE, that that's thrown a spanner in his works, but climate change is there and has become a big issue. And we've seen it writ large with the likes of Greta Thunberg. And I'm often fond of saying, well, and you talked about, I think in our first conversation about the spirits leading, uh, I see in the likes of Greta, maybe this is a somewhat controversial statement, as the spirit leading outside of the confines of the church. And she's giving voice to the climate anxiety of today's youth. What's your own personal experience with climate anxiety? Um, thanks, Mick. Uh, I just want to say, yeah, I, I think that this is a much bigger issue, actually, than, than we even realise yet. Um, so some new research came out just this month um, which was a global survey of 16 to 25 year olds, um, 10,000 of them. So a thousand each from 10 different countries around the world. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, exploring with young people their experience of climate anxiety. And the results are really quite alarming. Um, so for example, uh, 56, percent of these young people surveyed believe essentially that humanity is doomed due to climate change. So can you imagine what it must mean for their futures that 56 percent of these young people essentially think that they don't have a future, um, that humanity doesn't have a future because of climate change and mm. because we're not dealing with this issue. Um, and 64% uh, believe that their governments are not doing enough to avoid a climate catastrophe. Um, 
And we know um, with climate anxiety that it is made significantly worse by government inaction um, and by the powerlessness that young people feel when governments aren't acting. Um, and in fact, the survey found that 58% of these young people feel betrayed by their government um, because of this lack of action on climate change. So, you know, this is really serious all mm. around the world. Young people are feeling hopeless and powerless and they're feeling betrayed and angry at their governments because the action that we need to see in order to give us hope of dealing with this thing is not happening. Um, and Greta is a wonderful spokesperson for this. Um, she's a classic case of climate anxiety. Um, you know, she, she stopped speaking, stopped eating, stopped functioning essentially because of her climate anxiety. And the way she got out of it was through her protest and through the community that then built around that protest. And so by meeting with other people and by feeling like they were making a difference, that was what brought her out of it and what gave her the chance um, yeah, to become this amazing leader that we're seeing. And, and she's a beautifully uncompromising voice because you know she she doesn't um she doesn't put up with the equivocation and she doesn't put up with government saying they're doing things when they're not she says you know this is our future and you need to fix it um and yeah so she's such an incredible person but also at the same time i think she points out really well that she shouldn't have to be yeah like, yeah, it, again, this is a complete betrayal by all of us as adults that children are having to protest and campaign and beg us to actually save their futures. Like, there, there shouldn't be someone like Greta Thunberg because we should have acted before a child had to take on that role and become the leader. Like, governments should be doing their job so that she doesn't have to, to be there telling them to do it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes I hear it portrayed as if, I know it's a bit of a cop out, you could say, not all old people, because some of us have been you know, rattling on about this for a few years now um, before the student climate movement took off. But you're right, it, it it's very much speaks not just to the generation that's set on its behind and enjoyed its shares or its retirement funds or whatnot, but the governments in particular. And it's interesting, isn't it? And it's I feel conflicted over the statement. So let's let's pull it apart a little bit. Is that recently it was suggested, um, I think it was by our prime minister, that the solution to this climate anxiety was to put chaplains into schools to deal with it. Now there's it's one of those you know one of those statements that they it's almost the case of you know they say that every good lie contains an element of truth in that 
I, I suspect I know where that comment's coming from. I know where I would take it, but the, the, the immediate response is, well, actually what they are, the best solution to climate anxiety is action, as you've just illustrated in Greta's case, but um, you do want pastoral care, uh, but it's not just to soothe or to pacify, which is what I think is behind that kind of response to maintain the status quo. How does that strike you? Yeah, I mean, there's a particular political agenda there and, and particular deals that that are, people are trying to make. Um, but the statement did make me really angry. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, part, part of why I um, wanted to point out those statistics to you earlier around um, young people feeling that governments aren't doing enough and feeling that they're, betrayed um, is that it was a little bit funny that those comments were made and then two weeks later a global study groundbreaking new research came out which proved um, that in fact it is government inaction that mm. is causing climate anxiety in our young people it's not climate activists who they tried to glibly blame um, which is insulting to young people, right? Young people aren't stupid. They live in our world. They hear what's happening. They know that climate change is occurring. Um, they can read the science just like anybody else can. Um, so it's not, you know, climate activists mentioning that this is happening and talking about it that's giving them anxiety. In fact, it helps them to talk about it and to hear adults talking about it and taking it seriously. Um, yeah, the, the anxiety comes from not seeing the action that is needed. And it's particularly important for anxiety for young people to feel a sense of agency. Um, and, you know, I, as an adult, sometimes wonder <laughs> wonder whether I can have a sense of agency in a country like Australia with the political history that we do around climate change. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I have the education and supposedly the wisdom of age, um, you know, to, to take action and, and to raise my voice. Um, so, of course, children are struggling um, that, you know, they don't know how, um, how they can make themselves heard. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, you have something like the School Strike for Climate, which is this incredible movement. Um, and, in fact, um, the two girls in Castlemaine in Victoria were kind of the first ones um, to pick up the idea of school strike for climate and start that kind of global spread that it had after Greta started it. Um, so, yeah, they're doing such amazing work. Um, and, you know, if, if the politician at the time of the first strike had kind of said, okay, you know, we've got thousands of young people out on the streets asking us to save their future. Um, we as democratic governments are gonna, you know, take this seriously and we're gonna take action and, and we're gonna do it now. 
um, you know, then, then the, they would have that kind of healthy sense of agency of like, oh, you know, we raised our voices and we told our government what we were worried about and we asked them to act and they actually listened and they did it. Um, and instead, you know, I think there's this sense of, yeah, of betrayal and of lack of faith in our democratic system because it doesn't seem to be standing up to the most important challenge of our times. It's interesting we've seen recently, and just talking about agency, a court case uh, was conducted and it was prosecuted by, by children who wanted the government to recognise that they were actually legally responsible to protect the future of children and they, they won their case and now you've got a, an environment minister who is stating that's not the case. I think this is being challenged in court, if I remember rightly. So there's actually, it's, we're getting the exact opposite message that you've got these institutions and one's, you know, the separation of um, the law and the government and the laws come down and, and on one side, the side that we'd all hoped that they would, and then the government's turned around and said, well, I don't believe that's the case. So it's... yeah. I mean, how can you be anything but appalled? The, the court said that the government actually has, you know, a duty of care mm. to our young people and, and to look after their future. And the environment minister's response to that was to appeal the decision, to, to argue that they do not have a duty of care to our young people. How, how have we got to a position where, some, where we can be so unethical? I don't, I don't get it. I don't pretend to understand it, not being a politician. Politicians are interesting beasts, if you've ever met them, um, often very articulate and engaged. But um, it's, uh, it's, Canberra is an interesting world, isn't it? But it is. Um, and I was really impressed too. I went to the first climate change rally i went my lunch break and i was back at my desk by the appropriate time um and it, it, the contrast was amazing but there's these young people up there and they had very clear um policy objectives they wanted to see they didn't want a darny coal mine to go ahead they didn't want a new um any more exploration of fossil fuels in this country and they wanted i think renewable energy i'm pretty sure that was the the, the case and uh, they even rang up a poly at the time and i was just so and these are not my kids and uh, I don't think my son marched for whatever reason, um, but there were kids from his school there and, and uh, friends of mine with, with their kids. And I was just so incredibly proud as a, as a grown-up who's been talking about this for two decades, thinking, wow, it's, as, as you say, very articulate, very mature in their thinking, very clear in their goals and recognise this is what needs to be achieved. And it's just common sense. And I've said this before on this program that without getting into critiquing government policy, speaking on specifics the science very clearly tells us that what we need to do is to go to a carbon neutral economy as quickly as we can and that means precisely what the, what was being asked by these these children you're right they're not um they're not stupid they're aware of the facts the facts are very easily communicable about climate change it's really not that difficult without going into the the thermodynamics or the quantum dynamics of how 
infrared radiation is absorbed and re-emitted, any of that sort of stuff, you can build really simple analogies. You can look at really simple data sets and the facts are pretty clear. Uh, and the the pressing, what, what I get out of what you said a bit earlier about the results is that if the planet warms by four degrees Celsius, it's basically game over for human civilization. So the kids are actually really switched on to one possibility of our future that is not inevitable, but it does involve political will. Um, moving on, perhaps then, um, Glenn Albrecht has an interesting idea. He's an environmental philosopher, I think he was or is still Newcastle-based, called Solastalgia, which is the idea of being homesick while still being at home. Um, is this a, a concept that you can, uh, it, that you've experienced or reflect upon? I mean, I'm pretty sure from memory, one of the conferences that you organized, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, Glenn actually spoke at. I'm pretty sure I got his book autographed too. Yeah, um, Glenn spoke at our first conference in 2019. Um, and solastalgia is a really powerful concept. Um, and it's one that has kind of gained popularity and traction around the world. Um, and there's some really interesting studies being done with the Inuit uh, in particular around solastalgia as the ice melts in their homelands. Um, I guess my kind of first experience of solastalgia um, and, you know, for many environmental activists, they had significant environmental um, experiences, good or bad, um, as young children. Um, and so this was perhaps one of mine. Um, and then that was, uh, you know, a, a simple thing, I guess. Um, I grew up in a house that was on the corner of the street. Um, and then there were no houses um, for several blocks up until the top of the hill. Um, so there was this big space next to us, um, just a big grassy field. Um, but there was a flock of galahs that used to kind of be there um, every day. Uh, and, you know, we, we would arrive home and the galahs would be there and, you know, some of them would fly off because they got a fright because we were, we were there. Um, and so I guess we kind of had this, this relationship with this flock of galahs because they, they were part of our lives. Um, and so when the time came that that land was all developed and the houses put there, um, I, I remember being very concerned about where the galahs were going to go mm -hmm. and, and where they were going to live um, and kind of constantly looking out for, you know, where were their paddocks that they could move to or, or looking for the galahs to, to try and find them again because they weren't where they were anymore um and yeah so you know my house didn't move but the environmental context in which it existed very much changed um and I missed missed the galahs and and missed what it was mm. I can resonate with that they're one of my favorite birds from my childhood
All right. Um, so you've cited some research about global youth. Um, I'm wondering if in your own work and ministry, you've had much to do personally with school kids or you know, young adults, young uni students, whatever, and what your sense, uh, you know, what kind of expressions of climate anxiety they've, they've um, manifest in conversation? Yeah. Um, so one of my privileges working with the Uniting Church um, has been to interact with some of the students of our schools um, and the young people within our congregations. Um, and one conversation that really stayed with me, for example, I was doing some interviews around climate anxiety um, with some of our, our school kids. Um, and these were year 11, year, year 11, year 12, I think, students um, at one of our schools. And they were talking about, you know, not, not being able to decide what they were going to do at uni because they were afraid that climate change would impact or interrupt their studies. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these are young people at, at that, you know, precious kind of threshold to the next stage of their lives, not being able to make important decisions because they're so afraid of climate change and so afraid of the imminent danger that it is for them um, that, you know, they don't know if they can actually have the lives or the careers that they want to have. Mm. Um, and again, you know, it is beyond unfair that we are robbing children, not only of hope for the future, but even of the ability to, yeah, have those kind of, normal in our society, um, human experiences of, you know, deciding what you want to do after school, deciding what career you want to have, deciding um, how you want to shape your future. Um, you know, there's incredible statistics around uh, the number of people who are just thinking about not having kids or thinking about not having another kid because they're so worried about climate change and the future that those children might have. Um, so this anxiety runs deep for people and it's changing the way that we live and, and it's hurting people. And, and there are even people who don't kind of realize necessarily that this is what they're going through um so they might think for example that they're having marital problems that there might be kind of conflict within their marriage um but if they go deeply into that with a psychologist they might find for example that one of the points of conflict is around um yeah different kind of ideas of how they should act out um, their desire to be sustainable, for example, mm -hmm. or, or um, 
again, you know, one of them might want to have kids and the other might be like, well, I don't really want to bring a child into a world that I think is doomed. Um, and so climate anxiety um, can impact all these other things happening in our lives and, and make them worse and more difficult. Mm. You know, it, it's funny, the, one of the images I've got in my mind at the moment is I don't know if you've seen the Terminator movies <laughs> and they're kind of these apocalyptic films. It's the, the first one would have been a bit before your time. Uh, but the the main character, in a sense, is not the the machine, which is both the agent of destruction and salvation. But it's um, and the actress actor's name has completely gone in my head. But it's um, the the heroine, as it were. She has a child and tries to raise them to be a warrior. And so I wonder whether or not um, one of the ways in which the church can help is. Um, it comes back to the theme earlier about um, the whole chaplain idea is it's not about placating kids or soothing them with, with false lies, but giving them a stronger sense of their agency. I mean, we had a, I never wanted more than two kids. We ended up with just one because of a population thing and the, the rich affluent lifestyle in the West. But I think if you're going to have a child, then it has to be some statement of hope about the future of the world and equipping them, to, to combat that because they are growing up with a lot of trauma. Um, so nostalgia is the kind of the trauma that's of what's to come, but what's unfolding now. And so it seems to be, there's a lot of work to be done in that space, which leads me to that. You mentioned the conferences that you organized and I was lucky enough to speak at the first one of those. Uh, so thank you for inviting me and uh, staying with your husband and your menagerie of animals at the time, birds and, and rabbit and so on. The rabbit's still about. Yeah, she's still alive. She's pretty old now. Excellent. Uh, but so you've organised a couple of conferences on eco-anxiety. Can you talk to us a bit about uh, how these conferences came to be, the sorts of people you invited? Don't talk about me, talk about other people. Uh, and what you hoped participants would actually get out of the experience. Yeah, so I guess um, as I was kind of realising that climate anxiety, um, you know, had, had been kind of part of my life this whole time without me even being conscious of it um, and that it was increasingly a thing that people all throughout our community were experiencing um, and indeed throughout our church, um, and so I started looking at how might we be able to help people with this climate anxiety. Um, and, you know, one of the responsibilities that particularly our church leaders have is for the pastoral care of their flock. Um, and so I wondered whether they had thought about, were aware, were upskilled, um, to be able to actually help people with their climate anxiety. Um, and being aware that, that climate anxiety is actually a bit different from other forms of anxiety. Um, so, you know, people might have training in kind of, um, yeah, assisting people with uh, generalized anxiety disorders for example, 
Um, but one of the things about generalized anxiety is that it includes a lot of catastrophizing. Um, and so there could be a temptation to kind of assume that climate anxiety is the, is the same thing. And so it's about sort of trying to reduce that catastrophizing. But the thing about climate anxiety is that it is actually the most rational response to the situation we're in. We are in a climate crisis. So it is a healthy thing for us to acknowledge that crisis and to be worried about it. So when we're trying to help people with climate anxiety, we're not trying to get rid of that anxiety, really. Um, we're just trying to help them to manage it and to keep it at a level where they can still function and still have healthy, happy lives. Um, and so, yeah, the, the conferences have been about bringing together psychologists and experts in climate anxiety um, with church leaders so that um, those leaders can yeah, learn from the, the best science and practice that we have available um, about how to treat uh, climate anxiety and grief and solastalgia and related climate psychology um, yeah, uh, so that they can then provide that service um, to their congregations and hopefully also to their communities. Uh, so one of my kind of dreams for all this is, um, you know, uh, we have an under-resourced mental health system. Um, it, it's not easy for everybody to access, but we do have churches in pretty much every town and suburb in Australia. Um, so if we could get to the point where all of our church leaders are at least kind of basics trained in helping people with climate anxiety, then suddenly there would be this network all across the country that can help people. So if you're a farmer in the middle of nowhere and your cattle are dying because of the drought, which has been made worse by climate change, um, then hopefully, you know, churches could be this safe space where you can actually come and talk to the church leader about what you're experiencing. Maybe they can connect you with others in your community who are also experiencing that climate anxiety so that you don't feel so alone. Um, and also, you know, they, they hopefully would have the contacts that, to then refer you on if you actually need professional help to deal with the anxiety. So a real climate chaplain kind of thing in, in, the, in a more genuine sense than perhaps has been offered uh, as a suggestion. Uh, I'm, I just can't get out of my head thinking about, and we talked about this a bit, in the, well, I had it in my mind in the last program, we we're talking about how in the Pacific it's real, a real present danger, if you will. But one of the things that just preceded COVID was the 2019-2020 fire season. And, you know, we know yep. um, 
that you know, people in the Bureau of Meteorology, the fire weather experts, start that roster earlier, finish it later, and it's not that many years ago, two new severe uh, categories were introduced into the warning system. So uh -huh. it's, it's really not that difficult to see a direct connection between fire weather and climate change, global warming. Mm. Uh, and so those things are live issues as well. And there are people who are still waiting for financial support and obviously people who will yep. still be hurting and traumatised. And it's just everywhere. Yep. Um, and I really like that because I have a question and we're pretty much you know, covering it now is that I've oftentimes thought that the church should be prophetic in calling the world as a whole to repent, but needs to start with itself for, on a number of issues on, on every issue, let's face it. But what I'm thinking specifically about climate change, about the way in which the church becomes very tightly married with capitalism and the driving the engines of but ideological, theological, and so on of, of trashing the planet and seeing ourselves as so separate, et cetera, et cetera. But how, a, a genuine pastoral role uh, meeting people's needs where they're at now and it is this climate anxiety is really part of our historical dna going back to the, the plagues in rome where it was the the quote-unquote the pagans and nicked off to, if they had the money nicked off to the hills to avoid it but it was the christians al alongside people suffering and if uh -huh. the incarnation is not that, I don't know what else it is. <laughs> and get a good dose of Philippians too. So that real sense, I, I, yeah, I really hear what you're saying and understand more perhaps what we talked about in our second conversation about the need for specific courses in theological colleges because there's precisely that deep pastoral aspect but then perhaps the importance of having climate change spread throughout all the courses because um, you really bring to the fore the difference uh, on climate anxiety compared to maybe some other forms because it is really a rational response. Mm. Um, those who aren't anxious about climate are the mad ones and those that are anxious yeah, they're the are ones we the should same. be concerned about. Absolutely, because yep. they're in denial. Um, and Yeah, I mean... Um one of the ironies, I, I think, um, is that the church in Australia at the moment is so concerned about decline and so concerned about um, their financial situation, et cetera, et cetera, um, that, you know, there's less and less investment in things like environmental ministry. Um, and actually, I believe that, you know, if anything can save the church, in air quotes, mm -hmm. um, it is actually environmental ministry. I, I think in order to save the church, we first have to save the world. Because if we can, as a church, um, genuinely embrace the challenges that we are facing as a society and get alongside people and say to these despairing, hopeless people who know that what we're doing now isn't working, but don't quite know what's next 
next or where to go. Um, hey guys, you know, we don't necessarily know what the future is either, but we know that the environment is important um, and we know that we need to act on climate change. We know that we need to build a new and better future that's based on certain values. So values like caring about creation, values like caring about people, values like caring about all people equally. Mm. Um, you know, we, we need to build the future based on those values and we need to build the future with community and you know churches might be declining and they might not be as big as they were but they are still centers of community they are still um you know centers of social capital if you want to put it that way mm. so these are still um places where um people can learn from each other like the skills shares that I was talking about in the earlier e episode you know um and people can work together they can grow food together they can um find ways of living and operating more sustainably together um and so by really taking environmental issues seriously the church could actually start giving people some hope and start giving people, you know, maybe not a fully mapped out idea of the future, but some of those first steps that we need to take to actually create a better future and to get out of some of the traps that we have fallen into where, you know, essentially at the moment people serve the economy, the economy doesn't serve us. Mm. Well, that can't last. And, you know, we live on a finite planet and we're pursuing unlimited economic growth. It can't work. So we need to find better ways forward. And, yeah, you know, if, if we look for it, the Christian tradition has values and ideas that can actually help us to think about how we want to build that better future. Hearty amen from me on that score. Um, and that, it seems to me, is, uh, is a good place to finish our, our conversation, uh, which I've really valued uh, and enjoyed. And uh, I don't think it will be the last time. So thank you for your time and for your thoughts. And My pleasure. Godspeed in, in all your continuing work in Five Leaf Echo Awards and, and working with youth and, and in your continued um, reading and, and reflecting both on the, the horrifying facts of climate change and the way in which people are responding, but also in the theological basis for action uh, as the church, which, um, as you rightly note, the church is actually not the institutions or the way in which we wed to large institutions per se, but it's the communities of believers, communities of hope. So thank you. Uh, and once more to my listeners, thank you and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons 
conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.